is this just a big lie? And like, spoiler, yes. I mean, one of the things that I discovered, which was from a study that the Federal Reserve Bank did, is that working moms are the most productive members of the workforce. And the more kids you have, the more productive you become. And you stay that way your entire career. Welcome to The 43%. I'm Claudia Reuter. This show forgets about the leaning in or leaning out debate and talks to successful women about their path toward creating a life that includes both family and career. Our name is a nod to the fact that 43% of women do leave the workforce at some point when they have children. We all have our takes on why and what might be done to better support working mothers. In this show, though, we explore a wide range of experiences and ideas. was today's guest, Sarah Lacey. Sarah is the founder and CEO of Chairman Mom. She also founded Pando.com on maternity leave in 2011 and built it into a profitable investigative journalism company. She's been a journalist for nearly 20 years, known for her fearless, outspoken reporting. She's been profiled in publications as varied as the New York Times and San Francisco Magazine, and is a sought-after speaker and guest on national TV and radio. Her newest book, A Uterus is a Feature, Not a Bug, The Working Woman's Guide to Overthrowing the Patriarchy, is part memoir, part manifesto on the power of working mothers. Sarah is also an unapologetic feminist, mother, and supporter of other women. In our conversation, she shared some of her experiences as a woman in tech, including fundraising with a baby, and the reasons she developed Chairman Mom, a new online community for working parents. She also shared some of her thoughts on the importance of seizing opportunities, getting comfortable being the only woman in the room, appreciating your current state, and conquering worry. So thank you so much for making the time to visit us here on the 43% today. Do you mind kicking off by just introducing yourself and sharing a little bit about what your day is like today and what you're working on now? Sure. Well, thank you for having me, first of all. So my name is Sarah Lacey, and uh, right now I am the founder and CEO of a company called Chairman Mom, which is a subscription-based platform that is basically the opposite of the rest of the internet for women. It basically makes you feel better about yourself every time you use it and more united and less divided. (laughs) We're just basically the opposite of everything else. There's no trolls. There's no bots. There's no toxicity. No one is ever calling anyone a bad mom. It's a community where women can help lift each other up. It's basically a daily virtual experience of, you know, what we've all experienced in things like the Women's March in the last couple of years. Mm. What's super interesting to me, at least, about my career is I spent 20 years being an investigative journalist in Silicon Valley. And, you know, I was one of the first people to ever write about Facebook. I have written several books. I've been on TV. I I helped build TechCrunch. And then my first company was Pando, which was Mm -hmm. uh, an investigative um, journalism company that was, you know, most known for for helping bring down Travis Kalanick and Uber. So I really spent 20 years of my career both benefiting from, but also exposing and continually punching in the face 
this sort of um, geek bro male centric, you know, world of Silicon Valley. And I was mm-hmm. very used to being the only woman in the room. I mean, Pando had an 85% male readership. Um, I definitely had a lot of male mentors who really helped me out. You know, I spent a lot of time, you know, kind of being like, oh, you know, it's like most women who are Generation X, like everything's fine and I'm doing just fine, even though I'm a woman and what you hear over and over again. And, you know, really spent 95% of my time with men. That was my life. And then when I had children, you know, it wasn't an immediate everything changed. But, you know, I would say over the next like five years after having children, things changed more and more for me, you know, and and part of it was everyone, every signal I had ever been sent by a man, by a woman, by popular culture, by movies, by magazines, was that the second I had a child, not only would I become horrible at my job. Mm-hmm. Not only would I not have time to do my job and I'd be too covered in vomit to ever do my job again and would never sleep again in my life. And all of these things that we see over and over and over again in pop culture. But, you know, worse than that, I would no longer care about doing my job. Suddenly I would like lose all interest to essentially just be a host. And I, that was terrifying to me. So I put off having kids until I was 35 and I'd done enough in my career that I felt like if all of this happened, like I would be at peace with it. And an amazing thing happened to me. You know, first of all, none of that happened. And second of all, I, my career went into hyperdrive. I mean, I, that was when I founded my first company, I became a much better manager. My net worth increased. I was more successful. I was, you know, I got more speaking gigs. I was on television more. My brand was better. Like, I mean, across the board, every single thing, professionally and personally about me got better after becoming a mother. And I was so struck by that disconnect. I was so struck by it. And I kept talking to women who were young, who would say things to me that I had said for the first 15 years of my career, like, oh my God, I, I would, you know, I, I would love to have kids, but my career is so important. And I've fought so hard to get to this place. So I just can't. And I'd be like, no, it is going to make you better. And it is not that hard. And the infant stage goes really quickly. And like, you know, I was just amazed by this weird thing in this culture where if someone quits a six figure job, to go start a company, which is likely to fail and not a rational thing to do. And their relationships are likely to suffer and they're likely to develop health problems and depression and all of the things that we know go with starting a company. Everyone congratulates them. And is like, that's amazing. Wow. You're taking so much risk. If someone decides they're going to do like a hundred mile marathon or an Ironman, things our bodies are not meant to do, things we know like Mm -hmm. toenails will turn black and like all these weird, gross things will happen. We're like, wow, you're so hardcore. That's amazing. But if someone says, I want to continue to have my ambitious career and I want to also be an amazing mom, everyone's like, it's like a record scratch. And everyone's like, oh, you're going to fail. Oh, you're going to fail oh, and your relationships are going to be horrible and you'll never sleep and you're going to be miserable and you'll feel like a failure all the time because you won't be able to do any of those things well. It's like, wait a minute, what is happening? You're totally right. I mean, I remember when I had my second child, that's when I started a company at night because I was like, well, I'm not sleeping anyway, but I also felt like more able to juggle things in a weird way. Like I knew it didn't make any sense to people who weren't in it. But I remember feeling exactly like that. Like, well, 
there's so much to do. And I, now I kind of valued the time I had and it was almost like I compressed more activity into the time I had to get things done, if that makes sense. No, it absolutely does. And what I discovered, you know, as I continued to kind of dig into this, um, because, you know, being a journalist, I was just like, is this just me? Have I had a totally unique experience to parenthood that no woman ever has, you know? <laughs> and um, the more I talked to women, I mean, I had conversations like we just had where it was like, yes, you had the same experience. A lot of women had the same experience. So, you know, I set out to write my book, A Uterus is a Feature, Not a Bug. And part of what I wanted to do was sort of tell my own story of, raising kids, becoming a mother, starting a company that became an incredibly controversial company um, that had a very dramatic story. And, um, you know, I got divorced over that. So I became a single mom, like everything that like sort of happened over that journey. But I also wanted to, you know, do a lot of research about like why this, why there's this disconnect, first of all, why this is like the biggest trick the patriarchy has convinced women on themselves. Um, and why that's so, what's so unique about American culture when it comes to that, which directly ties into why we're the only country that doesn't have leave. Um, but I also wanted to look at data around, you know, is this just a big lie? And like, spoiler, yes. I mean, one of the things that I discovered, um, which was from a study that uh, the Federal Reserve Bank did, is that working moms are the most productive members of the workforce. And the more kids you have, the more productive you become. And you stay that way your entire career. It's like becoming a working mom unlocks these abilities of creative problem solving and focus and productivity and almost time travel, really. I mean, every mom has that thing where it's like you don't have your kids for a weekend and you like clean your whole house and organize your closet and go to brunch and work out before nine o'clock. And you're like, what did I used to do? <laughs> right. This summer I was working with many people who are pre, they haven't had kids yet and they're younger and one of them was like, oh, I was up till three in the morning. I'm so exhausted. I'm like, why? Like, yeah. <laughs> what do you have going on? <laughs> um, so do you mind jumping in and telling a little bit more of your story? You know, you mentioned that you started a company and there was a, a big story around that. Do you mind sharing that? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I always feel like I've been part of several journalism startups and, and also just been friends with people who built them before. And I feel like the really good ones um, particularly in the tech space, tend to become kind of a room of requirement for whatever the industry needs at that time. So I think mm -hmm. if you go back to the dot-com bubble, which was when I moved to Silicon Valley, you had these glossy magazines like the Red Herring and the Industry Standard that were chronicling this almost breathless story of the internet and of dot coms and why they were something that was going to change the world. Now, obviously, in the wake of the crash, those magazines went under and, you know, they were not viewed too favorably, but they played an important role at the time and they weren't actually wrong in the macro story of the internet changing everything and these companies becoming huge. Um, they were breathless. They didn't ask enough questions. You know, there, there were things that we can all criticize them for. But what the industry needed at that point was champions and people to be explaining the bull case of this thing that the broader business press didn't understand and that broader people didn't understand. And, you know, then I think 
we had sort of a wave of, of journalism that was really tearing everything down because people had felt like they'd been too bullish. And then you had TechCrunch, um, which, you know, started at a time when everyone was so angry coming out of the dot-com crash that they didn't want to believe in the internet again. And, you know, um, Mike was really one of the first people who thought these were really cool things people were building. And again, like, the industry and the people trying to build the next wave needed a champion and needed someone to believe in them and be pointing out why these were viable businesses. And, you know, mainstream media missed early Facebook, missed early Flickr, missed all of that. And I know because I was at Business Week at the time, I was in mainstream media, and I did a cover on a lot of these companies and it it got more hate mail than anything Business Week has ever written, with the exception of a company saying Apple was going to die several years earlier. It was people screamed at me and saying I was trying to incite another dot-com bubble. And it was like my super bold prediction was that YouTube could possibly sell for $500 Within a year, it sold times that. It was so intense, the anger around it. And even internally at, at Business Week, it was incredibly hostile. But, you know, I first interviewed Mark Zuckerberg when he was 19. I mean, I was very, very early on this. When I quit Business Week to write my first book, which was about the rise of Web 2.0, I had so many well-meaning, mostly male editors call me and tell me I was throwing away my career because these companies were all going to be out of business by the time the book came out. Wow. You know, and so that was what was needed at that time was for people to be like, no, this is what's different about these companies. And these are the promising ones. And, you know, and it's interesting, by the time I started Pando, it was a very different landscape. You know, we have been in now like year 10 of what should have been a six year expansion cycle. I mean, the Mm -hmm. dynamics of the sort of mega rounds these companies can raise have just been unlike anything we've ever seen before. And that really coincided with the rise of the bro economy, which was much more hostile and outright misogyny than we've seen in Silicon Valley, um, you know, really for a really long time. And uh, so, you know, I think what was needed at that point was for someone who understood these companies and understood this industry um, to hold them accountable. And no one was either able or willing to do that. Um, main, a lot of like snarky publications like Gawker would love to write about, you know, ooh, Google buses are awful. But they didn't care enough to do the real journalism. And they also didn't know enough about these companies to actually be able to write anything that, you know, isn't what a stupid 20-year-old hipster in Brooklyn might think about a company in Silicon Valley he knows nothing about. And then, you know, likewise, you know, the New York Times was just breathless. You know, sites like, uh, you know, Recode, which had in the past been incredibly hard on these companies, you know, their business was based on their events and there was a lot of access journalism. I had gone to Recode's event for seven or eight years and I got banned because I made Travis Kalanick feel uncomfortable. I mean, oh my God, anyone? anyone? I know. Horrific, horrific. Um, and, And that was sort of the landscape we were in. And, you know, TechCrunch had been sold to AOL. They certainly weren't doing it anymore. Um, and, and we were kind of left in that role and, and that was the role that the industry needed us to do. And we were the ones who could, but, you know, and, and look, we made a amazing brand for ourselves in a six year period. Um, you know, we really stood for something. People still adore the brand. There was so much connection to it. You know, our reporting was constantly followed by, 
Vanity Fair, New York Times, New Yorker, Washington Post. I mean, we were on CNBC. We were on Rachel Maddow. Like we were, we were on everything. So how did you get in there? So, you know, for those of us who are not journalists, like how, so I'm also a Gen Xer. I'm 43, right? And I definitely grew up with the sort of, it's fine. It's okay. I'm just trying to get through my day kind of mindset. How did you, you know, how did you get under the hood, so to speak, and, and really figure out what was happening and then go on to ex- to expose it to others? Well, I'd just been a career journalist, you know, and like I grabbed opportunities when they were in front of me. I mean, when I, so I started my career and it's so interesting. I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I didn't grow up with a lot of money. I didn't have a journalism degree. I did not work at a daily. I mean, I, there was no, I did not follow the path everyone told me I needed to follow in order to become a national journalist. But Mm -hmm. I worked really, really hard. And, you know, I think journalism is this amazing thing where you bring whatever, whatever your own greatness is to that profession. And every great journalist does that job a different way. And, you know, it is real, you just have to really tap into like, what makes you unique? Like, what is unique about your writing? What is unique about your storytelling? What is unique about the way you piece trends together and see the world? What is unique about your approach with sources and how you get them to talk? Um, that's what's so exciting about it to me. And that's what's exciting to me about, or was when I was, you know, hiring and um, helping develop and mentor journalists. Um, but it's, you know, it is a hard job. And it's one of the things that's so hard about it is you, if you're doing it well, you will always be hated. And it's, you know, it, it, there's no worse feeling than finishing a story and having everyone connected with that story call you and tell you you did a great job because that means you got snowed. And so you live in this, con- this is when journalists are such miserable human beings if you're ever around them. Like you, first of all, you're a jerk to everyone you know because people will be like, the sky's blue today. And you'll be like, well, I don't know. Is that really blue or is that periwinkle? Like you are conditioned <laughs> to have to just, well, I don't know every single thing someone says because that's what you mm-hmm. have to do to what you have to question every obvious statement put in front of you, which makes you the most annoying human being on earth. And you're also just beaten down and paranoid and miserable because you spend your life being hated by everyone. And, you know, I think on one level, that is a hard thing that burns people out. And that's why a lot of people leave the profession. And you're also making no money, basically. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think what's, it's actually, if you are okay with that, it's a great way to build your career as a woman. Because you very quickly get past trying to please everyone. Because you aren't doing your job if you're trying to please everyone. I am one of the only female founders I know who is openly hated and still raises money. Because people understand that success in my job was being openly hated and being okay with that and still not caving. In fact, in the fact that I am so polarizing, the fact that so many billionaires hate me is the reason I'm able to raise money from so many other billionaires. I think most women are conditioned to have everyone like them to not speak out, to not make waves from the youngest, youngest age. And, you know, I think in hindsight, that was a tremendous 20 year gift. Um, But, you know, the answer was I was able to deal with those things. I grabbed an internship at a small business journal in college. I ended up, you know, when that paper had that chain had an opening in Silicon Valley 
at the top of the bubble, I grabbed mm-hmm. it. And I was in my early 20s. And I was very happy in my job. I was in Memphis, where I'd re- been born and raised. I was very happy at my job at the Memphis Business Journal. You know, and it was fascinating. There was another girl who was a, also really, really talented, same age. Um, we had the same level of seniority. We were both offered a position um, at the paper in Silicon Valley. And she turned it down. And she said, you know, I'm just not quite ready for this. And I feel like Silicon Valley will always be there. And I grabbed it with both hands, even though I wasn't ready for it either. Um, And, you know, uh, what, less than a year later, the bubble crashed. I mean, Silicon Valley wasn't always there. And so, you know, I think I, I grew up without a lot of money. And I was always, I never made a decision in my career based on money. I took a lot of risks. I jumped off a lot of cliffs. You know, I quit Business Week, a publication I had worked for 10 years to be able to get to, um, to after a couple years to write my first book. And everyone thought I was crazy, but that book exploded my career. You know, after that book came out, a lot of big publications wanted to hire me. And people thought I was crazy. I went to go help build TechCrunch instead. Again, like, everything I did, which was seemingly everyone around me was telling me was a horrible, you know, life exploding, career exploding move, always wound up being like strapping jetpacks to my back. And so, you know, and I was just, I didn't listen to everybody else. Like when everyone else was saying, oh, these internet companies are, you know, it was the safe thing to do to say these internet companies are all going to fail. Don't cover them because they'd all been burned a few years before when they got super into them. But I was like, look, it's not my job as a journalist to do take the safe road. You have an amazing ability to trust your own intuition on where the next opportunity is and go seize it, which I think is something a lot of people aspire to be able to do. You know, is that something you've always, it sounds like something you've always had, right? Yeah. Or is that something you've continued to develop? It is. I mean, I think you you learn to listen to it more and trust it more and you learn the hard way. I mean, there's a lot of people that my gut told me not to listen to or not to trust. And I, you know, learned the hard way I should have listened to it. I mean, I think, again, if you're a woman, the world is really great at talking you out of believing in yourself and believing what your gut is telling yourself. But in general, um, I, uh, you know, I had an amazing mom who was such a phenomenal role model for me. And I think that made such a difference in me feeling like, um, you know, what I thought was was worthy. What I thought was as worthy as what some dude was telling me. I also went to an all-girls school for 13 years, which um, I think was so important. I mean, just the fact that, you know, when I was reading like Sheryl Sandberg's book when it came out and she was describing like, you can't raise your hand in class because smart girls don't get asked to the prom. I mean, when you go to an all-girls school, you don't experience that. I think there's so much social conditioning of quieting your voice that I didn't experience. Now, today, you know, I have two kids. My daughter doesn't go to an all-girls school. I have very complicated feelings about it now. But for me, it was really as a girl growing up in the South, it was really invaluable. And I was always outspoken and I always had a very clear sense of what I believed and what was right and what was wrong. And I was incapable of going along. I was incapable of playing the game, you know, much to my detriment at many points in my life. I was a pain in the ass for so many people. There were so many people who 
hated me. There were so many people who never wanted to be friends with me. I mean, I just, I couldn't, I, I was my own worst enemy in many ways, but all of those things that had been so um, limiting to me, you know, socially or in what, whatever way growing up, you know, I found journalism and they were all things that were great for journalism. So, so you, you know, you mentioned earlier, obviously you've exposed some um, huge stories over time and, but you've also had male mentors. Can you share a little bit about what, what some of the positive male mentors did or how they helped you on your career journey? Cause I know like I'm obviously spending a lot of time and a lot of women are trying to mentor younger women coming up, but I look back and realize, you know, a lot of the people who helped me early in my career were men. And I, I try to think about that. I'm wondering if you have any good examples of that. I have so many good examples. I was, I was really lucky and like, it should be noted that like, this is where white privilege comes in. There are a lot of white women who are the right kind of woman that men in power are happy to mentor because somehow, you know, they're a little bit less scary or less polarizing or more like them or, or I don't really know what, but I do think this is like a massive privilege gap that like white women don't acknowledge enough. But, um, but that said, I mean, you know, I moved here when I moved here in 99, absolutely nobody would pick up the phone and talk to me. I mean, I had to fight my way in and I had to just continue to write better and better stories. And there was a lower, I had a higher bar for what the work I wanted to do than the work my editors would have accepted from me because I felt like I wasn't writing for those editors. I was writing for the future editors that I wanted to work for and the future publications I wanted to work for. And, um, you know, so I, my work started to distinguish itself and I started getting, you know, attention from people who were like, this reporter really knows what she's talking about. And, you know, I, I started getting just over, over the course of it, a, a lot of people who, who, who believed in me, but also appreciated that, um, you know, I was, I was not afraid to be an outlier. I mean, and it's not just as simple as like, oh, she hates everything which I think anyone who's been reading my work for the last six years might feel like. But it's like, you know, I was early on a champion for Web 2.0. I think I've just always been contrarian to whatever the cycle is. I've always been a little bit ahead of it. Um, and I think the people who were building those companies appreciated that I saw what they were doing that was unique and, and not just going along with the crowd. And so I think that that was something that distinguished me, that people wanted support, which, you know, so I think it was first and foremost my work. I mean, you know, my privilege, but also my work that people would be like, okay, well, like she's actually good. And I think like most women, I had to do five times as much work that had to be 10 times mm -hmm. better to ever, ever, ever get that. Um, I also went everywhere. I was very unintimidated about being the only woman at a conference, about, um, you know, having those conversations with men. Um, I, I talked to so many women who, who you know, they're, they're the rare women who get invited to something like um, The Lobby, which is this amazing invitation-only conference in Hawaii. Um, I've been going to The Lobby for 13 years since it was started. And I wasn't invited the first year and I called David Hornick who organizes it and I bitched him out and explained why I should be invited. And he, for some reason, relented and let me come. And I, what was the reason you gave him that let, that had him say, you're right, let's get her here. What did you say? Okay, so he had invited, so he, so his big thing was, 
I'm not inviting any journalists because it was supposed to be off the record. And I was, you know, look, I was very connected in the community. I was smart. I was working on a book. I was like, that's when my career was kind of starting to take off. And I, you know, and he, and so when I called him, his excuse was, well, I'm not inviting journalists, not you haven't started a company or other reasonable things he could have said at the time. And I turned it around on him and I said, well, you've invited Ohm, you've invited Kara Swisher and you've invited Michael Arrington. So that's not fair. You know, you're, that's not true. And he said, but those are all people who've also started companies. And I said, okay, but I work for myself. I've written a book. I'm, I'm just as entrepreneurial as they are. And remember these blogs were tiny one, two person things at that time. And he basically mm-hmm. won it. And he was like, okay, you're right. It is kind of an arbitrary distinction. And if you want to come, you can come. And um, it's hilarious. All three of those journalists have since been disinvited from the lobby. Well, not Ohm. I think Ohm chose not to come, but both Kara and Mike got de-invited over the years. And the only wow. one still goes. But but point being, I think I was one of three women who were there the first year. And um, going to that, that conference is insanely expensive. It's expensive to go. It's, it's, the lodging is expensive. Um, the, the ticket is expensive. No one is comped as a reporter. You're used to getting like comp to conferences. It's the only conference I've ever paid for. It is the only thing I do every single year with the exception of like one year when I was like giving birth. And, um, I, I, you know, I've had to put it on credit cards. I have like had to pay it in installments. Like there have been times in my career when I could not afford it, but I am telling you, I have done millions and millions and millions of dollars of both revenue and venture capital from relationships I made going to that conference for 13 years. And like, the reason I tell this long story is that I see women over and over again, get that fucking golden ticket and be the only ones allowed in and be that small percentage of women allowed to go to these spaces. And they don't go. They don't go because they say, too expensive. I can't afford it. My company can't afford it. I can't ask the, com- the company to pay for this. Um, I don't know if I'll feel comfortable in this over-masculine space. And they are lighting their, their future potential on fire. Women say to me, how are you able to raise the money you are? How are you able to find male mentors? 95% of them I got to know going to this conference for 13 years. Sometimes women are our own worst enemies in this situations. Um, one of the best mentors that I had um, who really, really extraordinarily believed in me um, was Mark Andreessen, who I started covering um, when I was at Business Week um, before he, well before he started Andreessen Horowitz. And this was a period of time when Mark Andreessen was if you can believe it, considered a has-been in the industry. This is post-Netscape. This is the loud cloud IPO exploding and being called the IPO from hell in the cover of Business Week. And Mark Andreessen didn't talk to anyone in the press. He was incredibly burned and and like had a lot of scars from how he was, you know, he had been the cover boy of the dot-com bubble. And so when it bust, everyone turned on him. And you know, I just had this sense that he was still a smart guy and still an interesting guy and someone that I was fascinated with because I've always been fascinated with the history of Silicon Valley and wanted to get to know. And I mean, we, it was probably a five-month campaign to get a phone call with him because he hated journalists wow. so much and in particular, he hated Business Week so much, which is where I was at the time. And it was a long, long road. And he spent a year being like, 
you know, we would have conversations, but I couldn't quote anything. I couldn't use anything. It was all off the record. I mean, he spent a year trying to figure out if he could trust me, um, you know, before he would ever talk to me on the record. And, um, you know, we, we spent years building, investing in this trusted relationship. And again, people at Business Week made fun of me. They were just like, Mark Andreessen's never going to do anything in, noteworthy again. Why are you wasting all of this time? That's and crazy. It, it is. I know. But this is how much groupthink there is in media. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, lo and behold, he then becomes, you know, the second coming of Mark Andreessen, which is even more dominant than the first. Right. And, uh, you know, I had this relationship with him. And, you know, he always believed in me and he always like trusted me and we would disagree on stories. I would write things that would piss him off from time to time, but he respected, you know, what my job as a journalist was. And when I started Pando, I mean, he was, (laughs) my job got taken. I was supposed to become the editor in chief of TechCrunch. My job got taken away by Ariana Huffington while I was in labor. So I came home with a baby and needed something new to do essentially. So I decided to start Pando on maternity leave. And the first person I called was Mark Andreessen. And he said, I'll absolutely fund it. Like, come down and, you know, I'll fund anything you want to do. You know, come down and meet with me. Mm-hmm. So I took my baby down. Um, and, you know, I didn't have a nanny. I didn't have any family. So I took Eli with me. Um, and this is a this is well before Andreessen had children. He And he's like a noted germaphobe. And he has like a total eggshell off-white office. And so I wait, and how old is your baby again at this point? Weeks, 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 right? Weeks. So it's, it's still chaos at this point. Yeah, totally. Usually I was a really good sleeper and I kind of arranged it during nap time. We're driving down Santa road. I'll get kind of quiet in the car. And I mean, he is just like fussing and fussing and fussing. And I'm kind of like, you know, doing the, uh, shaking the, rocking the car seat with one hand while I'm like negotiating the steel and pitching what I'm going to do. And like, I'm like, why is this kid like out of control? He's never this fussy at this time. And then it's like, I noticed that it's like, the it, he just stinks. And I look down and like, his onesie is literally changing colors. Like this child has had oh, the world's most extreme blowout diaper in the middle of germaphobe Mark Andreessen's stark white office. Wow. And I was just like, so what did you do? I was like, I have about five seconds to get this deal done. And it's like, I'm such a new mother. I don't even have a second change of clothes for him. Like I, nothing. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, this is comical. And so I basically like wrap up the negotiation really quickly. And then, uh, and then wheel out and I'm like, uh, do you have a place I could change Eli. And the assistant, the admin like takes me into this office that has nothing but stacks and stacks and stacks of jam boxes. Like, I don't know if you remember. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm like trying to change him. I like have no clothes for new clothes for him. So I just throw away all his clothes and the diaper and everything and just wheel out. And it's like, in my imagination, you know, 20 years later, when someone decided they needed a jam box, they went in that room and they were like, <laughs> what has happened in here? But it was, you know, it, I like wheeled poor naked Eli out like through the office, uh, but it was ridiculous. But it was, you know, but it, but that's the thing, like as much as there is legit bias in Silicon Valley, I took a baby to a pitch with the guy who's basically the king of Silicon Valley. And he was like, okay, what do you want from me? And I was like, I want 250K and I want you to lead the deal. And he's like, okay, 
let me think about it. Um, let me talk to my partners about it. He was going to invest as an individual, not through the firm. And he said, let me talk to my partners about it and I'll call you back. This is like around Christmas. I'm freaking out because I haven't heard back from him. And like, I need him to lead this thing. I know if he's in, everyone else is in. I'm about to come off maternity leave and I have like no income and a baby. I'm like totally freaking out. And I, he and I are playing phone tag. And I'm like, I just need you to sign this fucking paperwork. Like, I'm so pissed. <laughs> And I'm like, and of course I'm a woman. So I'm sitting there thinking, oh, I knew he wasn't going to fund me. And like, I knew it was all talk. And, you know, I can't believe this. Like he's been trying to convince me to start a company for years. And he said he was definitely in, and this is such bullshit and, you know, blah, 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 blah. So I finally get him on the phone. And I'm like, I'm at my parents' house in Memphis and it's Christmas and I'm a crying baby. And I'm like, I can't believe you, blah, 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 blah. And he starts laughing and I'm like, and now you're laughing at me. And he's like, the reason I wanted to get on the phone with you is I don't want to invest 250000 I want to invest a million dollars in your company. Oh, that's awesome. And a couple of years later, when I was pregnant with my daughter, my second one, I was reading Lean In when it came out. And I was, you know, nine months pregnant and building this company and my marriage was falling apart. And so I had a billion reasons to be in this major emotional state. And I remember reading about, you know, how many women have such a hard time finding mentors, like because of the optics of it, because of, you know, sexual harassment, because of a lot of reasons. And, you know, I was so struck by what a difference Mark Andreessen believing in me had really made in my career. And I sent him a note and I said, you know, like, I know you're not a super sappy person, but like, you know, I just, I want to make sure that I like actually stop and thank you for how much you believed in me. And I don't totally know why I've earned it. I don't totally know why you have, but it's been really transformative. And I want you to know how much I appreciate it. And he wrote back, um, you know, the thing is um, you work really hard and you give a shit and you have no idea how rare those two things are. Mm. And isn't it crazy how you, in the in that moment or in those days of not knowing what was actually going to happen before he tells you it's a million not 250 that you you went to the sort of the worst case scenario that it, it wasn't happening. Have you thought about that at all like what makes us all do that? Cuz I think we all do that. If it's an unknown, it's so easy to insert sort of the worst case scenario into the the void. Well, but don't you think it's mostly women who do that? Yes, as you say it, yes. I know I do it and I have to consciously replace those thoughts, but yes, I, I agree with that. And I don't know why. I so I'm wondering if you do. <laughs> it is so funny. So Chairman Mom is being built by me and a mm -hmm. white male co-founder and our only investor on our board. We've had a lot of women and people of color invest, but our only investor on our board is a white man. And I am convinced, you know, the data doesn't show necessarily that women only companies succeed. The data showed diverse teams succeed. And I think one of the reasons it's a good combination to have a female founder and a white male founder is they have this amazing belief in themselves that is unbelievable if you're a woman. I mean, Paul and I will walk out of the same meeting and he'll be like, they're going to invest at a $6 trillion valuation. I'm like, what are you talking about? That went horribly. They hate us. Like the way we process <laughs> input is amazing. And like Tim, who's on our board, he'll look at how the company's doing and he's like, well, I think we should blah, 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 blah. And he'll say something like, that to me is totally outrageous. 
Then he's like, well, why isn't Melinda Gates investing in this? I'm like, I don't know, because I don't know Melinda Gates, for one thing. (laughs) You know, but it's like they make these asks of the universe and of people that even I don't. And I am considered super ballsy for a woman. Like there is a between white male expectation and even entitled privilege, white female ego and expectation. I've noticed too that when I've hired other people, if there's, if I've got two candidates, right? One male, one female, and they've both been out of the workforce for a few months. Maybe the, it, it seems like if the woman has left because she's had a baby, I deal with people who are overly qualified and totally underconfident. You know, they'll, they'll be like, oh, I have to explain away this time that I was with my kid. And and I'll work my way back up the ladder. And a guy will be like, oh, I was just, you know, in Belize for a couple of months and somehow comes in with this confidence. Like I should be getting a, you know, coming in three steps up higher on the ladder because I was able to take time off. That must show to you how successful I already am. Um, I don't know if you've seen that, but that's, I've seen that. Yeah, it's Beto O'Rourke. It's, I took time away from my kids and family to drive around and sulk and stare into the distance to decide if I want to accept my divine right of I should be president. Mm. Imagine a woman saying that. You can't, right? You just can't picture it. No. Imagine a woman climbing on tables. I mean, every single thing he's doing in the campaign. Imagine a woman saying, my husband raises the kids and I help sometimes. It's astounding. It is a it is a but you know back to the confidence thing. I mean, yeah, I just think it, it and it's it's like we're conditioned. We are absolutely conditioned because you know it's another thing that Mark Andreessen once told me, and he told it to me about the dot com bust, not about this issue, but I think it's appropriate. Mm-hmm. You know, he talked about how he he also did not believe in the early rise of Web 2.0 companies and social media because he was so burned from the bust. And he said, Mm. we are predisposed as human beings. The way we've developed and survived um, is by seeing a threat and, and imagining that threat is still there, whether that threat's there or not. So if you see a lion over the hill once, you assume there's always going to be a lion over that hill. Mm. And sometimes there's not a lion. And, and so you fear yourself into this place that doesn't exist. And I think that's what a lot of women go through. I mean, you, you know, because there are people who, who say they, they will support women, but don't. There are people, there's a million times in my life where I probably wasn't in my own head, where what I thought was happening with that deal did happen. And so mm-hmm. I'm conditioned to believe that's what it is. And, you know, every, uh, you know, I just went on a rant recently about all of these female VCs who keep saying to female founders, oh, the problem with female founders is they don't go big. It's like, uh, no, we try. But like when we go into pitch meetings, we cannot make the same pitch that a man can. This has been scientifically proven. VCs do not hear the same words the same way. We can't go in and make that pitch. We will be asked to back it up with numbers, even if we are a seed stage company. So the reason women pitch businesses and not unicorns is because we have to. But that means I have a cat meowing. I don't know if you can hear him. He's like amening me. Um, But, you know, at the same token, every once in a while, the lion isn't over the hill. 
every once in a while, someone does want to believe in you. Someone does want to believe that you're pitching the unicorn. Someone is there to, you know, give you what you would get if you were a man doing whatever it is you're doing in your career. But because we're so conditioned against it, it's hard to make that ask and it's hard to believe it. I think it's the biggest thing I struggle with as a founder. Is knowing that the person who's listening to you is expecting you to have more data than someone else who's exactly what I struggle with is not is anticipating bias that isn't there. Mm. So for instance, I am so conditioned that I'm going to go into a pitch and I'm going to have to back everything up so granularly that if I do projections, I will do projections based on deals we've closed based on what we're doing now. I won't say, well, with this money, we're going to hire this many sales rep and each sales rep is going to be doing this much. So our business will scale this much, which is how a dude would pitch it. And mm-hmm. that hurts me. as So So I'm going in anticipating someone's going to say, this graph looks crazy, defend these projections. And I can say, well, we've signed these deals right now. We are doing this much right now. So the most conservative estimate is we would get to that. Whereas a guy goes in and pitches the most extremely aggressive estimate and a VC assumes that everyone is pitching an aggressive estimate. So my estimate looks worse. Balancing that I think is really hard for female founders, Um, especially women of color. I've talked to three different black female founders who've said they have gone in with numbers and VCs have told them they simply don't believe their numbers. Yeah. I mean, I know that in my experience when I was trying to fundraise and and building things, I used to feel like so nervous to, um, to get it wrong. And I, and now as I'm, you know, as I gained more experience and I'm older and all that good stuff, I'm, I realized the method and how it's supposed to work and, you know, like, Hey, with this capital, I'll hire these three people and they'll each do these five things and, and that bigger story. But I think the part that I had internalized was the fear of being wrong or the fear of um, making a mistake. Um, And that I don't see with my male counterparts. Because you've been conditioned. I mean, Mm -hmm. failure is really different for men versus women. I mean, it doesn't, it's not part of our DNA. It's social conditioning. And it's not we're being paranoid. It is social conditioning. It's like when you see the end of Shawshank Redemption, and um, Morgan Freeman can't go to the bathroom without asking permission. Mm. And so, so now you've started, so you had Panda and that's still up and alive and doing well. And now you've started Chairman Mom. Can you share a little bit more about what that experience is like, what, you know, on the ground right now for people who might be interested in checking it out? Like what, what is the benefit of going there? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's, it's been so much fun. You know, when I was building Pando, I would always run into VCs and founders and they'd be like, are you having fun? And I'd be like, what a stupid question. Of course I'm not having fun. <laughs> like this is really fucking hard. And the things that are great about it are like amazing and well beyond fun. And the things that are horrible about it are horrible. And there's a lot of them. And I always thought it was such a stupid mm-hmm. question to ask founder if they were having fun. And I just realized now with starting Chairman Mom, like, oh, that problem was I was building a journalism company, <laughs> like <laughs> building a software startup that has perfect timing and you have an amazing team and it's doing something good in the universe and it's growing really well. It's really fun. Like this is the first startup I've ever been part of that's legitimately actually really fun. And I've realized that like, 
you know, Panda was just especially bad because it was journalism. Um, but, uh, but no, it's, it, it has been amazing. I mean, we, um, we launched almost a year ago, um, in, um, sort of mid April last year. Um, we have, it's, you know, subscription only, uh, there's no freemium version and it's, you know, we're super religious about that because, you know, we believe, and this is not even just a contrarian belief anymore. It's been admitted to, um, the reason there's so much toxicity on social media is not because women wake up every morning wanting to hate each other. Um, it is because we have been conditioned by the software to get into fights because fights drive more engagement and more engagement mm-hmm. drives more advertising. And as long as you have an advertising based model, you, you are decentivized from ever building something that's not toxic. Because something that isn't toxic is something you can walk away from and move on with your life. Um, So we felt like this wasn't just a nature of women or the nature of mothers, the nature of of humanity, that we all wanted to hate each other and get in fights all the time. We felt like it was something that was engineered under the software and that was done to us, particularly women who are, you know, treated the worst in a lot of these platforms. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, we thought we could add a software, you know, starting with the business model of it being subscription only, but, you know, beyond that, at a granular software level, um, engineer toxicity out of a community the same way it was engineered into communities like Twitter and Facebook. And, you know, we've absolutely done that. Um, and it's it's really exciting. And every single day there are new women coming on our site who who express something along the lines of, I did not think this could happen online. I'm dying to learn more about this because there's been so much, so many articles recently too on the idea that all the internet's doing at this point is is spurring more discussion, but not communication, right? Like yeah. it's discourse. And so what are some of the things that go into your software that actually foster true communication versus, you know, doubling down on perspective? Totally. So- well, so um, we spent about a year studying where particularly women's communities, because we felt like moms are the most, particularly working moms are some of the most isolated people and mm-hmm. solve this for working moms. You know, we can we can solve loneliness and isolation for a lot of people. Um, and so we spent a lot of time looking at women's groups and women's communities where things went sideways and trying to look at why. And, you know, a lot of it is the ad-based business model, but you take that out. You add subscriptions. Okay, day one, you have no bots and trolls. Because mm-hmm. someone has to be authenticated as a real human being to sign up for the service. You have no bots. You have no trolls because there's no troll who's going to spend $5 a month to harass thousands of women when he or she can harass millions of women at scale online for free. Um, so you cut out bots and trolls. Fair. That gets you a lot of the way there, frankly. After that, um, you there are things where fights always emerge. Like think about the most toxic Facebook group that you've been in. It is always in the threaded conversations. There is something yeah. about threaded conversations where things that should not have turned into fights turn into fights and unravel in these crazy ways. And so we don't have threaded conversations. You know, we have question and answer threads where you can at someone, you can engage with what someone said, but it's like you're all sitting around the same dinner party. Two people aren't rat holing and turning into a fight between them. Um, we don't have up and down voting of answers that introduces mm-hmm. tribalism. 
Um, we, uh, you know, we have, cur- we've curated question and answer. So people submit questions. We pick a handful a day, which does this nice thing of concentrating the community's attention on solving a few women's really hard problems that day. But it also means that we're not repeating the same question constantly. Like that was one thing we heard drove a lot of people off moms and women's groups. Um, mm. we've also built a lot of stuff into the software that we haven't had to use yet because it, frankly, it's, it's gone so much better than we, than we anticipated. So like one thing that we'll probably do in the future that we can do is, um, throttling back how many times someone can comment in a thread, forcing people mm-hmm. to de-escalate and think about what they're saying. Now, no ad-based, um, platform would ever do this because you are throttling back interaction and fight and addiction and all the things that are making them money. It's like every single granular product decision you make is so different when you have a subscription-based business versus an ad-based business. It's really amazing. Um, We're also able to offer really good anonymity tools and privacy tools um, that an ad-based community would never be able to. For one thing, they have to track every single thing you do in order to repackage you. We don't. Um, Mm -hmm. because you've put your credit card down and you have been authenticated as a person at, when you sign up, you can have a lot of latitude for anonymity within the site without things turning toxic. So, uh, and we have actually two levels of anonymity. We have one, which is like super anonymity where, um, we don't even know who you are. So like, what's amazing about it, um, for contrast, uh, and we look, we actually looked at the data around this, like 88% of women witness mom shaming on Facebook. Two thirds see it frequently. And as a result, only 4% of women will ask advice. And this is why we started with like question and answer and advice being our core social object that we build everything else off of. Because there's a lot of things we can point to that social media is doing badly right now. But this is something it isn't doing at all because women have been so abused on these platforms. Um, So that was like the first really big insight. you know, the other thing that that's really interesting about it is I ran this hundred person private Facebook group for women, female founders and female VCs in Silicon Valley. Um, I kept it at a hundred women because I'd been part of so many Facebook groups that went sideways and had to get closed down. And I thought, well, maybe scale is the problem. So I capped it at a hundred women. These were all women who lived in, this, in San Francisco. These were all women who worked in the same industry. These were women who did business together. These are women who had social connections. These are women who had shared the same politics. These are women who, you know, had real world social pressure. And that I ended up spending about 20% of my time having to handle fights. It was so toxic wow. that within a year I had to shut it down. In contrast, we have thousands of women on Chairman Mom. They live all over the country. They share lots of different political beliefs. Most of them have a username and don't use their real name. Most of them don't have their real picture. They have an avatar. 66% of the questions are asked anonymously. 18% are answered anonymously. We have never had a single toxic comment. I mean, it is a difference of the software. It's amazing. So in terms of questions, like one of our big insights, there's a lot of people who build things for moms. There's a lot of people who build things for work. You know, our insight is that there's no stark line between work and life. I mean, if you want to attack the 
problem of why super talented women leave the workforce, it is as likely to be something that happens at work as it is something to be happens at home. So, you know, we tackle everything and we're there for people with whatever the hardest questions they face are. So the questions may be something as simple as, um, you know, can I get away with wearing tennis shoes at the office? To, you know, I think my spouse is cheating on me. To, uh, you know, I'm thinking about going to HR to report my boss. What should I know before I go in? I mean, it is is really, really across the board. You know, we had an amazing thread this week from this woman who is has so many degrees and is so talented and um, is a black woman who's looking for, you know, a job in the industry doing diversity and inclusion, which she has multiple degrees in and is super accomplished. And the feedback she's gotten is she's too scary. Too scary? Yeah. Because really accomplished black women are apparently scary. And so, you know, she has reached this frustration boiling point and there's this amazing like thread all about this. You know, there's, um, you know, we, we had a thread this week also um, from someone who was thinking he has two kids and her single biggest concern is climate change. And she was wondering, she's wrestling with whether or not it's unethical to have a third child because a lot of research has shown that the single biggest thing you can do to offset your carbon footprint is to not have an extra child. Like it far outweighs having a car or, you know, eating meat or any of these other things. And it was fascinating because that in and of itself, think of how polarizing that question would be on a social network. Like think of how much people feel emotional about the sanctity of motherhood and think about from the other side, how intensely people feel about something like climate change. We have these discussions on our site, whether it's about that, whether it's about um, go, you know, guns in houses and the safety of doing playdates if someone has guns in their house. I mean, we talk about the most loaded things that there is no, there's no platform on earth where this doesn't turn into a fight. And there's people on both sides of it and it does not turn into a fight on our side. That's really amazing because I can, as you're describing those topics, I can already see the caps lock, you know, going down on both sides. And to think that there's a community where people can actually have these thoughtful conversations that they may not be able to have in their local community it's kind of like the altruistic view of what we kind of all hope the internet would empower at some point. So it's pretty awesome that that's what you're working on. And you know what? It turns out the internet can. You just have to care about people and not advertisers. It's pretty awesome. So, I mean, I personally, I'm definitely going to check it out. And, you know, do you have any, I know we're coming to the end of an hour and is there, you've, you've shared some amazing stories and I'm wondering if you have any advice that you would give to younger women right now who are, just starting to contemplate work, career, family decisions, or any advice you would even give to your younger self as you look back and and think about the paths that you've gone down? Um, You know, I mean, I think like the biggest advice I would give to my younger self is just like, everything's going to turn out fine. I feel like I spent so much time worried about things that wound up not being an issue, whether it's like, will I ever find the right person to share my life with to like, what happens if I do have children? You know, it's Mm -hmm. this worry we all go through. Um, You know, I think that the advice that I'd give to people is, you know, own, own what's, what your advantage is at whatever stage of life you're in. Like, I'm so grateful that when I was in my early twenties, 
I went to everything and I went to every dinner I was invited to. I went to every conference. I networked with everybody. You know, I worked a million hours. I, you know, it was very Gen X, like pay your dues sort of mentality. You know, Mm -hmm. I did everything. I read every newspaper. I read constant books. I mean, I just worked my ass off, you know, constantly. And, you know, I never wanted to feel like there was something I could have done that I didn't do. And I definitely worked harder than I do now. Definitely. And I think that was a time in life when I could. Now, um, you know, that's allowed me to not have to work as hard now because I have a 20 year network because I have a lot of expertise because I know a lot of things and I've studied a lot of things. Um, you know, I, one of the things that I'm grappling with now is, you know, I'm in my forties and I really want to have a third child and I haven't been able to get pregnant. And I sort of, you know, I feel like like sort of upset with my body over that. And last year it sort of occurred to me, like, instead of, beating myself up for what my body can't do. I'm going to celebrate what my body can do. And so it's like, I've been working out, I've been running, I've been doing all of these things that, you know, mm. if I were pregnant right now, I wouldn't be able to do. Um, or, you know, little, if I got sick or I was disabled or whatever else, like being grateful for what I can do. And so I think that's, that's really important as you think about your career and your life, you know, rather than mourning what's not available to you, like grab with both hands what you can uniquely do in this moment. Um, Because what you don't want to do is look back and think, I wasted all this time being bitter that I wasn't at a national magazine when I could have been doing all these things in order to prepare Mm -hmm. myself for that job. That's amazing advice. And how, just out of here, how old are your kids now? They're six and seven. Oh, so you're in it. I feel like, like when I, when my kids were 18 months and like six months, like that was crazy. Like, I feel like six yeah. seven is super easy. They're in school. Oh, I can tell you, my kids are now 16. I had started early and my kids are now 16 and 14. And it's really, really gets easier every year. <laughs> like the more they become like a person I'm having a relationship with than someone I'm uh, actively caregiving, it's, it gets easier and easier. Well, this is what I always tell women when they're freaked out about kids. It's like, People think kids stay at an infant stage their entire life. I'm just like, that stage goes by really quickly and you will sleep again and you will, you know, and it will get easier. And the great thing about kids too is it's like, you know, you get better as they get harder. Mm. You know, so I think people with a newborn look at a three-year-old throwing a tantrum and they're like, oh God. But it's like, no, you'll get better. You will get better. Right. You'd be screwed if they came out like two-year-olds, but they come out like, you know, tiny little things. <laughs> you know, it's like you're, you're, you're a healing as they're growing too. So. Totally. And that's one thing I think also has been so powerful about the chairman mom community. I mean, I should mention it's not only for moms. In fact, I think about 30% of the content is actually about mothering. It's really, we're really like, a, there's a lot of mom communities that are kind of serving the child and you're the conduit. Like we're sort of the mm-hmm. opposite of that. Like we we really care about you. We don't care about you, the employee. We don't care about you, the wife. We don't care about you, the mother. We care about you. And so the conversations, even when there are conversations about mothering, it's fascinating how much the women who don't have children will actually weigh in on the parenting conversations because they tend to be more like, you know, how should I talk to my daughter about her period? And it's like every woman has a point of view on that because we all went through it. Um, uh-huh. but, it's, uh, but it's one of the things I think is so great about the community is it's not focused on the baby stage. 
you know, because it's not, a, it's, we're not a site for millennials. Like we're not generation specific. We're just a site for mm. badass women. And so you have a lot of women on the site who are at the peak of their career, but her grandmothers are well past the stage. And so you have a woman who's like pregnant the first time and totally freaking out. And you have this wisdom of someone coming in and being like, you know, this is not going to last forever. Like we had a thread recently about a woman who was like freaking out because she has kids who are super young, like I think a baby and an 18 month old, something crazy like that. And was like, I have not cooked dinner and how like, and I will be used to always cook. And like, how do you get food on the table? And, you know, I was like, listen, I love to cook and I cook every night. Now there was just a good two years. I did not cook. There was a good two years where my kids ate frozen shit and I ordered takeout for myself. And that was called survival. And guess what? Now they're six and seven and I cook again every night. Like sometimes you just need that perspective. And what's so powerful is as I'm able to give that advice to her, it makes me sit back and go, oh my God, things have gotten easier and I've got this and I'm doing a great job. And you know, there are four different studies that came out right after we launched that showed that the best way to build confidence is to give solicited advice because it cements to your own psychology that you're an expert. And that's the thing that I think is so powerful about Chairman Mom. You know, we only pick a couple questions a day. So really, we're asking people to give more advice than they get. And that's kind of a counterintuitive thing. But what we found is by a ratio of eight to one, People want to answer questions and give wisdom more than they want to get it. And it's because it is having this deep psychological effect of making them feel confident and in control. And that is the single best gift you can give to a working mom. That is the opposite of oh, that's awesome. if I leave the workforce. So that's kind of like the similar concept to like, if you, if you really understand a math concept, you'll be able to explain it to someone else so that yeah. just the process of explaining your situation helps not only that person, but helps you codify like that it worked, that you know what you were doing. That's so interesting. All right. I'm excited to check out Chairman Mom. It sounds amazing. And um, I love that that it's actually doing what the internet is capable of doing um, in support of communities and in support of um, women. And um, really, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story and share what you're working on. And um, I hope more people check it out too. I hope so too. My pleasure. And I look forward to seeing you on the site. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much, Sarah. Have a great day and um, feel free to reach out if you need anything. All right. I will. You too. Thanks. Okay. Bye. That's it for this time, but we'll be back next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring woman. If you could take just a minute to rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to hear these stories. The 43% is produced by me, Claudia Reuter, with additional help from the team at Critical Frequency. Our executive producer is Amy Westervelt. Episodes are mixed by Tyler Morissette, and our music is from Martin Wisenberg. You can find The 43% wherever you listen to podcasts, on our website at the43percent.com, or at criticalfrequency.org. Thanks again for listening and have an awesome week.